0: What happens when your brain blocks out a painful memory to protect you, but your body still remembers it? As a child, B was sexually abused. But it wasn't until after a visit to Planned Parenthood as a teenager, and a series of triggers in college, that Bee actually started recovering her repressed memories of the experience. Just a note, we're only using B's first initial for this episode. And a quick warning before we get started, this episode does include many discussions of sex and of abuse. Okay, so there are two times that I remembered remembered that my abuse had happened, and but the but the first one I didn't understand I'd remembered until it really fully hit me much later. So I was seventeen. I was a senior in high school. I was graduating early. And I was about to move away to London and um, went to the. I wanted to go to the Planned Parenthood. I told my mom, like, I want to be on birth control. I want to have sex with my boyfriend at the time, who I barely started seeing. He was my first boyfriend. Um, and we were talking about maybe, maybe whether or not we wanted to have sex. And that was ostensibly the reason I wanted to go to the Planned Parenthood. The, the real reason, I think, deep down, was that I was really concerned that I had an STD. And I was a virgin. I had never had sex before. So it was a very like strange compulsion to want to to go to a clinic to be tested for an S T D when there's next to no possibility that I could have one. Um I Googled like crazy. I was I was just I had this feeling that I had an S T D, which was it was irrational and so I went, I, we went to Planned Parenthood, and I asked to be tested. So I was, my mom took me. My mom was very open about um, sex education and things like that when I was younger and always said, you know, when you want to have sex, we'll go put you on the go. So this is my perfect opportunity to ask someone, do I have an STD? And so I was sitting. I remember perfectly. I was sitting in the Planned Parenthood. Um, my mom was in the waiting room. I had gone to the back room. So like one of the exam rooms, and I wasn't on the exam, like the stirrupy chair <laughs> that you get put into at the gynecologist. I was sitting, I was sitting in a chair, like at a table. And my doctor, who I would not met before this day, a man, I don't remember his name, which really bums me out. I really wish I did. Because um, if, if I didn't remember who he was, I would have a lot of questions for him now. Because I was sitting there, and I was, just insistent that I be tested. He was like, I don't understand why you need to be tested or why you want to be tested. You, you are a virgin. Like you, you have never had sex and you know, you just, you don't need to be tested. And I was, I was insistent. And I think in retrospect, now knowing what I know now, that makes what he said next makes a lot of sense to me because he, he kind of walked out of the room for a bit and came back. And I remember that he had talked to a woman like outside of the room. And he had said to me, he came back in and was like, are you sure you've never had sex? And um, that was a huge moment for me. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it at first. And then I realized what he was asking, me. he was asking, are you sure you've never actually had a sexual encounter? And it, I remember looking down at my lap because it felt like something like my memory had fallen into my lap. It was such a strange feeling. Cause then suddenly I, it wasn't that I had not like I didn't remember is that I had no context to what had, what had happened to me as a little kid, and then suddenly someone gave me permission to think it. It was actually a really important moment in my life, and I was like, "No, I I just like shut down." Even though I knew <laughs> that I just remembered being abused as a child, yeah. So that's kind of what started the journey with that that incident in the plan incident in the Planned Parenthood, um, which I am eternally grateful that they were there to kind of prompt that memory because the. The guy in Planned Parenthood had when I had said that, no, like I, I didn't, I've never had sex. He said, he said kind of again, I think nudging me. He was like, and not suggesting, but just kind of like, like I said, giving permission in, in a way. He kind of said, well, there's a nurse here who didn't remember, like some some things that happened to her as a kid until she was in her 30s, um, and I was like. Yeah, it was just like, oh, my God, this has happened to other people. And so that that's kind of how that memory first, or the memories first kind of flooded back. I much later remembered remembering <laughs> when I was in fifth grade, sitting there um, at my desk and having this memory bob to the surface for just a slight moment. And then I got squashed right back down. And so I remembered properly at 17 and could contextualize even that moment. Because at 10, I was 10 in in fifth grade, even at 10, when you remember something like that and you have no context for it, you just, your first instance, you'd just be like, nope, that didn't happen. (laughs) What triggered that memory when you were 10? Did it just come up randomly or were you guys talking about something? No, just completely randomly. I was just just sitting in the classroom and I don't even really remember the context of what what caused it? I just remembered, and that is something that is a consistent theme: is that you never, other than that that conversation the Planned Parenthood, memories blindsided you. Like you never know when they're going to come, what someone like what someone says or what someone does, or what the world does because you remember something like that. So um, the Planned Parenthood incident was like being yeah, being given permission to think something that I kind of had always thought or that maybe my body always knew had happened to me, but my brain hadn't caught up yet. And so it was, it was like the best way I can describe it. It was like, and I might cry on this. um, It was like, like letting out a breath I had been holding for a really, really, really long time when I remember that. And yeah, so that was when I first remembered. And then I didn't tell anyone for two years. A couple months after that, I moved to London and I I spent a lot of my time crying, (laughs) spent a lot of my time angry, spent a fair bit of my time Googling. And that's when I was like, what is it? Like, is this normal? If it happened to kids, like, am I alone? When you started remembering and after that experience, were you doubtful at all? Did you you think, like, maybe I made this up? Oh, my God, yes. (laughs) I spent that next two years insisting to myself that I had made it up. And, and trying my hardest to pretend like I had never remembered. And I mean, aside from that flurry of Googling when it was safe, when I wasn't near my family, when I had the opportunity to like, to not, you know, not have my Google searches explored when I was Googling like crazy, like child sexual abuse and things like that. Um, I, I remember like shutting my lap, my little Acer laptop. It was pink, like shutting it really fast, pushed it away. And I was like, no, I don't want to know anything more about that. And I even like, I even reached out to someone in a forum online about like survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And she'd emailed me back. Cause I was like, I think I remember something, but I'm not sure. And I think she, she definitely emailed me back and I just never responded to her. I was just so, so sure that I was just not going to deal with it. I was sure that if it was, if it did happen that I was going to take it to the grave with me, that I would, I would rather die than talk about it. So, yeah, so I definitely denied it for a long time. and then then there was just no more denying it anymore, which the, it was where the body stuff comes in, where the, um, the body knowing that it happened more than my mind college was a convenient tool to forget, but I knew there was some, there were some weird things about me. I knew that like I'd waited. I, I didn't ever actually have sex with that high school boyfriend. I, I waited until college. Um, and I, when I did have sex, like it was, it was with much hesitation, but also like in an overwhelming desire to just get it over with. <laughs> and, um, and on top of that, there were some weird things about me. Like i had never been drunk, still had never been drunk actually, and just kind of a, a deep aversion to men who had been drinking it was like, not about that. And just kind of a primal fear of some things that I think my body was like, nope, we've been in this situation before. We're going to exit this, this situation as gracefully as possible. And so um, this is where triggers come in. People, I think, have a have a misunderstanding of what an actual PTSD trigger is because in our culture, we've used that word to death. So real meaning and what a real trigger is very frequently, at least in my experience and people who I've talked to have had similar experiences to me, especially of, of events that happened before you can kind of conceptualize what was happening to you at the time, um, like childhood abuse, but especially sexual abuse because you don't, t- you don't have a language to comprehend that. So triggers very frequently are things that you... You just can't possibly predict. Like, they can be just weird things like smells and sounds that would you would think would have nothing to do with the, the original event. Um, the best way I can describe it um, is actually through Grey's Anatomy. There is a, an episode where a soldier who is now a surgeon has returned um, from war, and he's, he's sitting or he's laying down in his girlfriend's bedroom, and the, the fan above him, the ceiling fan above him, is whirring like a helicopter, and it triggers him. And that is exactly what it's like. It is innocuous stuff that does it to you. But in some situations, the sexual abuse, when you're triggered during sex, there is it's really hard to tell what has done it. And so I was with my second college was, or not the one I lost my virginity to, but the one that I was, the first one that I was really sleeping with out of the context of I've just lost my virginity. I do remember that he was on top and that I just suddenly couldn't, couldn't stop crying. And, and he was kind of upset about it, obviously. And shortly after that, we we broke up. Did he know? No, I hadn't told anyone at this point. I still had never, never said it. And I hadn't really connected it to the abuse at that point. Um, later, I would. And this is probably the incident that forces me to, like, talk to someone about it. I wish I knew what triggered me then. Because that would be very helpful to prevent it from happening in the future. Because sometimes I can feel it coming on. The feeling, the panicky feeling that precedes, like, a full-blown secondary post-traumatic stress episode. I've been triggered probably three times. Like, on a a full-blown triggered incident. So, yeah, that was the first two of them were involving men in a bed and one of them was not. And the one that was not is actually the one that was the worst. So the second one happened near my sophomore year, end of my sophomore year. So a year later, this was around the time I was actually starting to talk about my abuse. I had told um my mom and I had told and I had been rushed into therapy <laughs> and very quickly it was like I was doing marathon therapy sessions with a psychologist in Rockford, Illinois. And so it was like every weekend, going from UW Madison to Rockford, to like spend a lot of time just steeped in this in this memory. And I was especially vulnerable. And so I had this boyfriend, um, actually probably like my last like quote unquote boyfriend, um, in recent memory. And and he, I had invited him to come over to my apartment, and. I couldn't tell it was a, like a Friday night. I couldn't tell from the text messages that he, he was drunk, but when he got to my apartment, he was very drunk. And um, that's part of my naivete around alcohol is that I cannot tell when other people are drunk. I because I, I don't know how. To, I have no basis of comparison, and so if he had, if I had known he had been drunk, I wouldn't have let him come over because I'm very sensitive about men who have been drinking in a sexual context, and that definitely goes back to abuse. So. When he came over, we, he fell asleep in my bed, but he fell asleep on me, and he was drunk, and I couldn't get him really off of me. I mean, I was paralyzed by fear, and he was—he weighed more than me, so there was just no way that I was going to get him off of me when I was in a, like, weakened, freaked-out state. And so I spent a lot of time awake and with this drunk man who smelled like alcohol on top of me and I had a I had another um trigger because there was it was the weight of him and the smells and and the being trapped. And and so that was my second instance. That one wasn't as bad and I knew what was going on. I was like, Well clearly this is why I'm having this, this freak out. This is very close to the sensory memory I have from when I was probably nine when it happened, um, my abuse, although there's there's indications that I could have been it could have been happening a lot, and I could have been much younger, um, probably six. Um, if it were to have were started at any time, it would have been when I was six. After that, I also broke up with him, um, and seeing a pattern emerge. The third time was much more recently, the end of my junior year or beginning of, yeah, like the summer of my junior year, I suspect. And in college, I lived in this great apartment. It was a big Mansion that had been th- turned into studio apartments for girls. We shared bathrooms, so only women were allowed in this beautiful Victorian mansion. Um, my friends called the Jane Austen dorm rooms, which was very appropriate. <laughs> and um, there was this girl who lived like across and down the hall from me. And there were like three of us on the floor that shared a bathroom. And so I was walking to the bathroom, and I should explain first that when I was little, I had these things that I called crushing dreams. Um, I had, I used to call them the crushing dreams where it was not an imagery type dream. It was not, it didn't make any sense. It felt like when I tried to describe it as a little kid um, and I, I, by the way, I can't remember like not having these memories and these, these dreams. Um, The, it felt like mattresses being piled up on me. That's what I called it. And the numbers counting up. So it doesn't make any sense unless you know what a panic panic attack feels like. Then you know that that's exactly what I was probably having as a small child. And I was trying to, I would wake up in the middle of the night just terrified. And I was probably having sleeping panic attacks. And I would tell my parents and they would just be like, go back to sleep. You're, you, sound, you sound crazy. Like there are no mattresses piling on top of you. And because that was the only way I could like explain it is that I felt like I was being crushed. And, and the numbers counting up was probably something to do with my heart rate and like just, and also these dreams or panic attacks that were silent, but also deafeningly loud. Like I have no idea how to explain it, but just like so much pressure and, and building pressure. It was just a terrible, terrible feeling. And so I was walking to the bathroom in this, in this apartment at age 20 and 20 or 21. And I was walking to the bathroom and the bathroom had just just the toilet, um, and it was just like a long, little, narrow bathroom. And then the sink is in another room and stuff. And I, as I was walking past, I hear this um, this this sound, um, and it's this this type sound. And it it is actually one of my like floor mates using an exercise machine and I don't realize that at the at the time but it's like I can't really describe the sound and I'm not going to try because I might inadvertently trigger myself again but it's like a it's just a persistent sound and and I went into the bathroom probably didn't help that I went into a small and closed, closed space but I went to go to the bathroom and I was sitting there and I was peeing and I like suddenly was like I am having the crushing dream but I am awake i I was hearing this sound, I could still hear it from the bathroom her her room was close to the bathroom, and I could just hear the sound over and over and over and over again, and I just went back into my room and just started crying harder than I ever have in my entire life. I was on the floor, I was just just a crumpled mess of a human being for I don't even know i lost I lost time when that happened like i I can guess it was probably an hour, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, And when I pulled myself back out of it, um, my first thought was, I probably should record that sound so my therapist can hear it. Because I am not a sane human being. And so I go, I'm like still in the wake of being completely triggered, completely vulnerable, just such a mess. I've clearly been crying. Um, Probably this girl could have heard me crying from down the hall. And I would go up to the door and this poor girl, I'm so sorry. I wish I knew her name so I could send her an apology note. I knock on her door and she opens it like you're all sweaty because she's been exercising. It must have been like a rowing machine. I think it was some kind of rowing machine. Like where it's like, you know, that pulling in and I'm like letting go sound. Um, And it just happened to be at the right pace to, to trigger me. And I was like, between sobs, I was like, like, hi, I know this is really weird. But um, I was, like, abused as a kid, and the sound of you exercising just triggered me. Do you mind if I record this for my therapist? And she was like, what? And I was like, do you mind? And she was like, oh, sure, I guess. And so she, like, gets back on the machine. Like, I record the sound. I go back into my room and, like, start sobbing all over again because I've just, like, done it to myself again. And um, then I, like, once again, when I, like, got back to being, like, something resembling a human, I sent an email to my therapist, like hi, doctor, name excluded from this podcast. I, I just triggered myself with this noise. <laughs> what do you think? And like, I didn't even say actually. I'd never, I'd never said PTSD at this point. I didn't say trigger. I said something really weird happened because I didn't know what it was. I'd heard of PTSD. That PTSD is a word that usually seems to exist, um, at least until like pretty recently existed in the world of soldiers and that and and war. And so I didn't really know I wasn't entirely sure. I had an idea that that's probably what it was, but I didn't want to label it. And so I sent him this email and he he got back to me and was like, I think you had a secondary PTSD episode. Um and later I played this sound for my best friend, my dearest friend in the entire world, her name is Julia. She she got really upset because I think she could understand what it was in a way that I couldn't because I couldn't stand to listen to it for for as long as she could. And she was, she got upset and she was like, that sounds like, like heavy breathing. And I was like, and I hadn't realized that. And then I was like, that's what it was. And I, I didn't even remember that I had heard that sound at that pace. So that's, that is the weird kind of thing. That reading about other people's trauma is upsetting and sad, but like, triggers are weird things like an exercise machine can make you feel like you're seven again. Like it's, it's not something that makes any kind of sense. And, um and the fact that I think <laughs> this is a completely side derailed kind of slightly political rant. But I, the fact that I think that academia like insists on using trigger warnings so insistently um, really is kind of offensive to those of us who have actual PTSD because there are no trigger warnings for life. You know, like, I don't get to walk around in the world and have someone warn me when something's going to happen. I have to take care of that myself. And it's a, it's a scary thing. And so that's why I get upset when that word gets diluted. Because when I say, like, that's going to trigger me, I I seriously mean it. I'm like, like, that sound you're making or that sometimes a beat of a song will sound similar to that. And if the beat of the song, like, starts to escalate, like, starts to um, increase um, incrementally, I will get the weird the mattress feeling again and I have to leave the room or I have to turn off the song. Um I've had to leave public places because some kind of sound is doing it. So I think your mind does a really excellent job of being like, this is something you probably shouldn't know <laughs> happened to you. But your body can't forget because your body is trying to protect you from it happening again. And so at least that's that's what I think. So back to the denial of it. Um these are the moments, these, like, inconsolably sobbing on the floor, having your friend tearfully say, like, I think that sounds like breathing. Those are the moments where you're like, yeah, this happened. So sometimes I'll have, I'll have these flashes of, like, nope, I made it up. It's this. I still have them to this day. I had one, like, four days ago where I was like, no, it didn't actually happen. I was lying to myself. And then immediately just the weight of it just, just falls right back onto me. When I do that, I have to... sucks, but I do have to remind myself that it happens because the best way to heal is to to just keep thinking about something until it doesn't hurt you so much, I think. Um, I think that there's been studies that have said the more you try and remember an event, the more it deteriorates in your memory, which is actually a very powerful thing because I've spent a lot of time remembering my abuse and I think it has less and less power over me the more I think about it. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what actually happened to me and what I do remember, I don't remember anything like visually because it was dark. I remember being with my, having my left side, my left arm, pressed up against the curve of my sleigh bed. I had a white trundle bed. It was a sleigh bed, It like shaped like, kind of like a sleigh. And I had these little white knobs on the, on the like four posters of the bed and it was facing north-south I believe and I remember having my left side like kind of pushed me up against that side of the play bed because I was like trying to swarm away and um, but I also knew that I couldn't move and I remember just having the weight of a full grown man on top of me and I remember the smell I don't I don't actually remember the smell of alcohol, but the fact that I can't stomach it suggests the kind that it was—it was present. But I do remember I was around men as a kid, and and I don't really know how to describe this, but the smell of the inside of men's underwear, <laughs> um, and and I, for some reason, at nine years old, in this this moment I knew what that smell was <laughs> I knew what sexual organs smell like already and that's kind of evidence for the fact that this might have happened to me before I was nine I remember most vividly the incidents when I was nine probably because I I had some thoughts while it was happening and that had cemented this instance in my brain but I knew I knew that this smelled like sex, um, and I knew well that what was happening I mean, obviously, I couldn't, like, at nine years old, be like, this is rape, <laughs> or, like, this is, you know, sexual abuse. But to me, I was like, this is sex. This is what's happening. And I knew that it was because I, I'd had a sexual education from a very young age, which I, I can't tell if it was a good thing or a bad thing that I knew was sex. It would have been a really good thing if I, if I could have articulated that to an adult, which I didn't. So I knew I knew exactly what was happening to me, and I knew it because of the smells, but I also knew it, um, because of the thoughts that are running through my head. And I can't really tell you what they are because they, they're kind of incriminating. So I'm going to, they're going to, I'm going to back up from that because I'm really not at liberty to discuss that. The, the great thing about trauma is that it will shield you for as long as it's possible to shield you. And then it will, when you remember things, I'm not sure there's a lot of, a lot of like discussion amongst psychology communities, oh, whether or not repressed memories actually exist. And I could go kind of either way with this one, strangely, even though I feel like I've had what resembles repressed memories, is that there's the one side of the, of the debate that says, no, they don't exist, like they, they, they're not real. The other side says, yes, they are. People remember stuff that they never remember before all the time. And to me, I kind of fall somewhere in the middle of that because I feel like what happened to me wasn't necessarily the regaining of repressed memories as much as the recontextualization of something that I, I had previously not been able to understand. Like It's just like um, the best way to describe the feeling is like when you're coming up out of the subway in New York and you don't know what side of the street you just got off on or got out on and you're walking up into, into, into like downtown Manhattan, and you look around, you have no idea where you are, and then you recognize something, and everything just clicks into place. Oh, this is where I am. Oh, yes, I know exactly where, the, where that is. Or, oh, yes, I know exactly what that is now. The weirdest part for me about this entire situation is that I'm missing a really big chunk of my childhood, just memory-wise. There's a big kind of gap of memory lost in my in my years as a kid. And how I, how I know that happened, I have a very facial memory. So when I write papers, like, my mind, like, kind of hooks onto a random place. When I used to work at a museum, it was, like, a certain gallery. Like, so I'm typing this anthropology paper out. I'm in gallery 17 for no apparent reason. Um, but when I was younger, my elementary school and my middle school to a certain degree were laid out kind of like a line, like a, like a, just a horizontal line give or take. And you started at one end of the school at the left end of the line and you worked your way up to the right end of the school. So kindergarten, I, I had, I was on one end of the school and by fourth grade, I worked my way all the way to the last build or the last room in the building. And so that's really convenient for creating a timeline. If your if your brain assigns the memories to classrooms that you were in around that time, so which, this has always been a very helpful thing because I have a very good timeline of my childhood um, because of this. And it actually gets harder to remember things when things happened in high school because my locker changed at some point or, like, I didn't have, like, a homeroom, per se. And so um, my weird my weird spatial memory has, like, served me well. But but anyway, so every time something happened when I was little that I can remember, um, like, preschool I can't even remember. I remember lots and lots about preschool. I remember lots about kindergarten. I remember, you know, just innocuous things like doing number rolls and um, all these kids from my kindergarten class. I remember um, our weird, like, alphabet, humanoid creatures that taught us the alphabet. And I remember, like, where the little bathroom was in the kindergarten class. I remember my kindergarten teacher's name was Mrs. Disney, although, to be fair, that's an easy one to remember as a child. Um, so I and I I say all this because like from from like preschool, kindergarten, first grade, I have a lot of memories, like a lot of them, more than one would suspect like a, a four year old, five and six year old could remember. So I had a pretty sharp memory when I was like six or seven. My my uncle, my adopted father's twin brother, um, died. He had attempted suicide pretty, fairly recently, close to this time period, and he was an alcoholic, and he smoked a lot, and, um, and he, I loved him dearly, he was, he was great, and I loved him, but he died, and he died in a fire, he, um, he got really drunk, passed out, and his, we think that it was either an electrical fire, or a cigarette lit his apartment building on fire, and he was passed out so he didn't make it out of the fire and um and so so here's a terrific event that happens and I remember lots about it and then I remember going into the guidance counselor's office at school because someone was clearly concerned about me I don't remember what we talked about other than crying a lot and then from kind of around that time until my like That's of my grandfather and my 10th birthday in fourth grade, I am not much by way of memory. Like I do not remember much. And every time I do, it's kind of like a, Oh my God, like I gotta, I gotta remember that. I remembered that because I don't want to have this like giant sloth of time missing from my childhood. That's really shitty. (laughs) That's not fun to have. Um, So, and I was trying to describe it recently. Um, and the best way I can kind of come up, come up with it is I, like I said, I was like, I was just swimming along like a normal kid, like just swimming along in the, in the sea of just being a kid. And then suddenly in second grade, like someone or something grabbed me by my ankle, pulled me underwater. And I was like that for two years, maybe three, <laughs> like two, two and a half years. And it's not that I don't realize that things are happening during that time period. It's not like I have a giant black, you know, cut to black, no memories. It's that everything around that time, for lack of a better description, is like what happens when you put your head under the water in the bath. Like everything is jarbled and muffled and surreal, and or you just don't see anything because you can't, you're underwater. And so that's what it's like. And then, like, whatever force was holding onto me, let go of my ankle again, with the with the resurgence of trauma with the death of my grandfather and subsequently the death of my cousin a year later when I'm in fifth grade. And so I have kind of had this big period of memory loss bookended by like, these several deaths. And so this time period is something that I spent a lot of my time thinking about because I don't remember it. So there are just like a lot of things that happened when you remember these things, because you just recontextualize everything, like I said. And one of the things that I'm, um, remembering to mention is, uh, I had this really deep fear of being left alone in my house without my mom, because and I didn't realize this, but when I was seven or so, six or seven, um, at some point, (laughs) my mom went to go on a road trip And I remember that this is my memory because I remember looking up into the bookcases in our like little library that we had set up at our house. And we had these really tall to ceiling bookcases and I'm looking up and I just, I'm like, I'm going to throw up. And I, I just got sick all of a sudden. I got so sick that my mom had to turn around. And as soon as I got, as soon as she got back into the house, I was fine. And so I know that my body was doing things that I was aware that things were happening to me at a young age that I was like, Nope, my mom needs to not leave the house. Like it's not allowed. And so, um, definitely a protective measure on my, my body. Sorry. And so that's, those are the kinds of things like that. And like that I, I remembered, I remember only fairly recently, um, that I used to set fires <laughs> as a kid with just like a huge warning sign. Thank you, criminal minds for, um, making me realize that I started fires because they're like, Oh yeah, abused children often light fires and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I used to light a lot of fires, um, and never anything in the house, um, thank God, <laughs> but mostly outside. In kind of like a purposeful way though. It's kind of like not like a I wonder what happens when you use a lighter. So things like that. You just remember it you just remember weird. Everything comes in such a weird jumble. And then you're you're never sure that anything is real because not only are you a kid when all of this is happening, so your your ability to like to remember any given event when you're a kid is morphed by like not only your lack of experience in the world, but also your like relative size in the world. Like, you, you, yeah, you're so small, and you like you're just you're shorter than everyone, and you, your memories are just just fundamentally morphed and different. But so when I went into therapy for the very first time. One of the first things my therapist said is, like, we're going to start out by not saying this happened to you. We're going to, like, we're going to get there, <laughs> but first, like, we're going to, you're going to tell me what you remember and, and don't let yourself get entrenched in the memory, if that makes sense. Like, don't, don't cement it yet. Don't say, this is what happened. Say, I think this is what happened because one of the worst things that can happen is that you, you remember something and or you think you remember something and you, you go, that's how it happened. And therefore, it did happen. And because memory is finicky like that, we construct a lot more of our memories than I think we realize. And that was, that was helpful because it did get a lot of the doubt out of the way. Because when I did start talking about it, like I was just, I mean, I must have, like that guy must have lost money on tissues for me in that therapy office. Because I was, I just cried so much. And, and so that's, and that kind of guttural, like my body was remembering kind of crying is how I knew that it happened to me because as my therapist said at one point, like there's a lot of emotion here. And like when we finally ended that whole, like maybe it didn't happen exercise, my therapist was like, there's a lot of emotion here for me to guess that like, I don't think you would be crying this hard if something hadn't happened to you. And, and at this point, like, mind you, I only remembered that night, so like I don't have any of the rest of the contextual memories yet that like make it make a very plausible case for having had this happen. I just have like the memories of of the pain and the crushing feelings and like all these things. So um, and the smells, which are really just the worst part of all of it. Um, certain memories of my family have not been as as willing to discuss this as others or as willing to accept that it happened, how I say it happened and things like that. And so, um, but I will say what happened to me for people who don't know, um, some, a lot of the people that I, I interact with know what happened to me, but what happened to me was my sexual abuse was the result of the after effects or side effects of a sleeping egg called Ambien. Ambien is a, like I said, a sleeping aid, but it's also, like, really powerful, and it has caused people to do some really terrible things in their sleep. It's caused, I mean, on the milder end, sleep eating, like, engaging in behavior, sex behavior while sleeping, um, all these kinds of things, and... And on top of it, it's also caused people to murder people <laughs> while using ambient in their sleep. Like they're fully asleep, but they are sleepwalking and sleep killing or sleep abusing children and like all these things. And so it's really, really terrible. So I get the I get the warm cushy feeling of knowing that what happened to me wasn't the result of pedophilia and um or, or intentional harm to me. But I do, that does add a nice little layer of shit passiveness to my situation because the person that abused me did not remember abusing me. Um, The person who did abuse me, like, has acknowledged that it happened insofar as he has been like, yeah, I mean... I believe what you said, but I have no idea what happened cause I don't remember. Can I ask, how did you find out about the ambient and all of this? Did, did your abuser say that to you? or? Yeah, actually, the person that abused me told me. So um, when I've been doing a lot of my research about sexual abuse, I just couldn't reconcile the person that I knew had abused me with what people described pedophiles as. Like, I just, they're two very different things in my brain. And I was also very hesitant to consider them two very different things because I didn't want to have, like, some kind of Stockholm Syndrome thing where I was excusing my abuser. Like, I wanted to hold them accountable, but they did not act like this had happened. And so, and I was like, this is, like, either this person is the best actor in the entire world or the fact that I know that alcohol was involved. Like, this person was so impaired that they did not remember it happening. And I was not going to bring it up. I really wasn't until I was on the phone with this person and I casually (laughs) like mentioned my abuse just completely by accident because I'm so used to talking about it and being very open about it with my friends and my family. And so I was talking about it on the phone. I just like, oh, well, when I was whatever, I don't remember how it came up exactly. And this person was like, hold up, stop. What are you talking about? And like got was so freaked out because I had never mentioned it before, obviously. And I was like on the phone. I was like, "Do you really not remember?" And <laughs> and I think that was probably the moment for them to have remembered or not remembered. But then like shit, <laughs> like this is probably something that I did because I I danced around it when I first remembered that it happened. I couldn't be in the same room with this person. Them hugging me made me want to throw up. Like I was so just viscerally. and and disgusted and like just I loathed them I hated them so much but over time that feeling had dissipated it it resurges every once in a while sometimes I can't be around this person and that sucks (laughs) um in some respects but I also just like know that I have to that I have healthy limits here so anyway so I was like I just I can't imagine this person having done this I can't imagine it and so I also had some people in my family telling me reasons why it would have happened. And, and they were all kind of, like, self-motivated reasons. Does that make sense? Like, oh, this person did it to get back at me. Or, like, this person did it out of grief or out of this or out of that. And so I think that, like, kind of worked my own perceptions of it. I was, like, this was done to me as an act of malice. It was done to me as an act of revenge. It was It was done to me for, you know, a whole bunch of reasons. And so I was like, okay, maybe it wasn't pedophilia as much as it was just terrible act of revenge. And I was like, okay, maybe that's more possible. But I like, I was like, I just can't see this. I can't can't reconcile these two people, this like pedophile and this person that I know. And so I I did let it slip to him on the phone, and I hung up the phone really fast. I was like, nope, <laughs> we are done with this conversation. And we were supposed to have brunch like a couple of days later. And, like, I just, like, went about pretending like it hadn't happened because I'm really good at that. And so I was like, we're just going to not talk about this. And we were sitting having, like, a really great brunch. We were talking about something else. And then I mentioned something about, like, needing to protect my inner child. And I was like, yeah, like, I just feel like I need to protect this little version of me. And that's something I haven't really talked about in our conversation is that my biggest struggle with my abuse in a lot of ways, other than accepting that it has happened Um, has been that I held myself accountable for a long time and that the hardest thing to see now is to see kids or little girls especially, to see girls who are like seven, eight, nine years old and to realize then that I was so small, so terribly small when this happened. And, And I also was angry at this little version of myself for not telling anyone or for just letting it happen or just, I was angry for so many reasons, and I just kind of, like, just left her. I was just like, you know what? We're just going to leave the childhood behind, pretend like it didn't happen. And so I realized my very last day of therapy with my first therapist, she and I were talking, and something called the doorknob effect happened where, the, like, the last five minutes of my therapy when I was like, okay, I'm just going to be my last session for a while. I hit on what was really the most upsetting thing to me about this is that I had abandoned so much of myself and trying to get over, get over all of this trauma. Like, I just, like, very much like a, almost like a Wuthering Heights type situation where there was this little girl at the window of my life, just, like, just, like, touching the window, like, hey, can I come back in now, please? Like, I, like, this sucks. <laughs> you just abandoned me, and you hate me, and I don't understand why. And so um, my advice to people who have been abused as children is to take care of your little inner child. Like, let her have a zebra cake now and again, or, like, let her eat some Easy Mac. Or craft macaroni cheese that she when she was little because that is really a healing thing. But anyway, so I was mentioning this this feeling that I really need to protect my inner child, and that I felt like a single parent to myself. It's a very weird thing, and like that's not something you want to exactly like force on yourself too much because that's like what happens. And you have dissociative identity disorders. And so instead I was trying to reconcile these two personalities and reconcile who I am as an adult and who I was as a kid. And so I was mentioning this and the person like looks over at me and was like, I think I did something terrible to you, but I don't remember. He was like so upset and he excused himself and went to the bathroom. I didn't see him for a while and came back to like really red eyed and, um, Honestly, like, anything less, I would, I'm not sure I would have believed, because I had so much anger, and, like, he was just kind of blown away by this, and he's still in therapy, I believe, um, about all of this, because that's not a fun thing to remember, either, on the other end of it. And so, um, he told me that, um, that's when he told me about the ambience, and he was like, like, just so you know, like, this is not an excuse, but... I was on a, on a cocktail of five beers a night, Ambient, Lunesta, and over the counter thinking medication and anxiety meds. Like, I was on so much because <laughs> he couldn't sleep, and so he was just doping himself. And so he's like, I don't remember a lot from that time. And um, he told me that he was waking up in weird parts of the house, waking up outside, like, down the street. Like, so he was sleepwalking. That was kind of, I think, what made him realize that what happened to me is something he could have done and not remembered it having happened. And so for him that was kind of a big big deal. And it was for me too, because I went from existing in a world where this had happened to me because, you know, of someone's revenge or someone's malice or someone's paedophilia or something, to a world where it was just a really terrible accident. Like just the worst imaginable accident. And there have been other cases of this. And I'm sure I'm sure that there are a lot more than people probably realize. And I don't think that any medication that has this kind of side effects that can impact another human who's not even taking the medication, um, should be oh, should be legal. But I don't really know how it's possible that it is. I mean, I can probably say that Ambient or ruined my childhood. Like <laughs> I don't really know how else to that that's a pretty deep claim, but it, it happened. Like it I was sexually abused because of it. And um although to be fair, like I spent a lot of my time like, is this really what happened or is that like an elaborate like you know, why, but it, it really isn't. And I've spent a lot of time working through it. And it definitely, definitely was the way that it happened. And it's unfortunately, it's terrible. But ultimately, a lot of my pain just kind of melted away in that moment, because I wasn't a pawn in some bad scheme. And it was just really a terrible accident. And the the weirdest part of my, my situation personally, is that there are so many layers of remembering and not remembering and remembering weird things or remembering things that didn't seem possible that it took a long time. Like I'm 22 now. What's 22 minus nine. I can't do math, but it's, it's been that many years since the abuse happened that I'm finally able to talk about it. You know, like it's, it's taken a long time. And sometimes I wonder like if, if I could have not ever remembered what I have, what I've taken that road. Instead, like if I was, like what would my life be like if I never walked into that Planned Parenthood and sat there and had this kind of revelation? Um, but ultimately, I think that it would have happened. It would have just happened either way because there's there's no way your body goes through something like that and you never know. There's always something kind of deep down, whether it be like getting triggered like during sex or weird sounds or something. And your 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 mind really doesn't want you to remember, but your body wants to protect you, and so like it's kind of they're at odds often. Um, and I am <laughs> pleased to announce, I guess, that I'm going back into therapy in the next couple of weeks because these things, after a period of like nine months of not being in therapy, it it's been a good it's been a good run that I probably should go back in. And that's the thing is like this is this is not something that's ever going to not affect me, unfortunately, but but it will lose its power over time, just like remembering something more and more and more is it. It's just the physical synapses in your brain lessen over time. So the more, the more I process it, the more, I think the more anyone would process their abuse, the more it loses its control over you. Thank you so much to B for bravely sharing her story with us. Music in this episode was by Will Lemkeul and Clayton Bennett. This has been Memory Foam. Thanks for listening.